based entirely upon emotion and made without thought. In this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 20, we learn of another revolt and another murder. But the message of the chapter has more to do with thinking under pressure than it really does about rebellion or even murder. That's just the backdrop for the real message of the chapter. There is one person that we'll meet in this chapter who will excel in thinking. And actually, it's not David. It is not Joab. It's an unnamed wise woman from Abel, Beit, Makkah, the little town in Israel. David's victory over his son Absalom was bittersweet and probably more bitter than sweet. His son was dead. And even though his son had rebelled against him, it was still his son. The trip back to Jerusalem offered some relief to David and perhaps even some satisfaction as he was greeted by Shimei, who confessed and offered an apology, as he met up with Mephibosheth, who explained the situation with himself and cleared up a misunderstanding in Barzillai who expressed adoration and homage to the king. But as has been said in the past, clouds have a habit of returning after the rain. And a threatening cloud did, in fact, appear at a meeting at Gilgal on David's way home from the battlefield. In chapter 19, the chapter that we studied last time, verses 40 through 43, read this way, Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Shimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah, and also half of the people of Israel accompanied the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away, and brought the king and, all, and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? And then all the men of Judah answered in the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us. Why are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense, or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. What should have been a marvelous time of healing and restoration ended up being a time of argumentation and self-promotion between the men of Judah and the men of Israel. Then, as chapter 20 opens, we meet a fellow named Sheba, who the text describes as a worthless fellow. The Hebrew behind that term worthless is Belial, which you probably remember from the New Testament, it's used of Satan twice. Belial can also mean, in addition to worthless, it, it can mean good for nothing or wicked or maybe even destroyer, which is probably why it's used of Satan in the New Testament. And with that introduction, you know that David is in for some more trouble in this chapter. Chapter 20, verse 1, now a worthless fellow happened to be there, and we're talking about at Gilgal at this meeting where everybody starts arguing. Now, a worthless fellow happened to be there whose name was Sheba, 
the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have the inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. So as a result of all this fussing and fighting that took place at Gilgal, one fellow, Sheba, decides, that's enough of this. We're not going to ever get along with you men of Judah. We're leaving. We're out of here. The text doesn't tell us specifically that Sheba called for an armed rebellion against David. Simply that he calls for the removal of support from David. But that's a bit like saying... You're not being fired. We're just not going to renew your contract for the next season. Effectively, it amounts to the same thing. So by withdrawing his support and calling upon all the men of Israel to leave this meeting at Gilgal, he has, in effect, started a second rebellion. First, the Absalom Rebellion, and on the heels of the Absalom Rebellion, the Sheba Rebellion. The men of Judah stayed. The rest left. So that's the situation. Now, what's David going to do about it? In verses 3 through 7, Then David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, the concubines, who he had left to keep the house, and placed them under guard, and provided them with sustenance, but he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Call out the men of Judah for me within three days, and be present here yourself. In other words, back in Jerusalem. So Amasa went to call the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which, he had been, which had been appointed for him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went after him, along with the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. This is different from the Absalom Revolution, because David sees this one coming. He didn't see the Absalom Revolution coming. Perhaps he should have, but he didn't see that coming. And here he takes three steps to defend himself from this new revolution. The first step is that he secured his concubines. Absalom had used these women, or probably more accurately, he had abused these women, to make a point to the people of Jerusalem that he's now the man in charge of Jerusalem. Remember, he had sexual relations with these women in broad daylight in front of all of Israel. David is going to make sure that that never happens again, at least not to these women. It's speculated about, and I wonder, but perhaps David also desired at this point in his life to abandon his old ways and be faithful to one woman. It looks like that might have been what he had in mind, because at least from here on out, Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, is the most prominent woman in his life. So maybe he wanted to start afresh and remain faithful to one woman from here on out. It's hard to say what his intentions were, but he does provide for the care of these women for the rest of their lives. True, in effect, they are under house arrest, but they're treated well. It's not a perfect situation, but probably the best that David can do 
under the present circumstance. So that's the first thing he does in this plan to hold off Sheba, son of victory, in this second revolution. Then David, the second step, then David orders his new commander, Amasa. And you'll recall, Amasa was the commander of Absalom's forces. But since Joab didn't obey his orders and killed Absalom, in punishment for that, in retribution, when it's all over, David makes Amasa, who happens to be Joab's cousin, they're all David's nephews, he makes him the commander of his army. So David calls Amasa together to gather the men of Judah in preparations for a potential action against him. He'd been caught off guard by Absalom, but he's not going to be caught off guard again. So he is immediately assembling all of his troops. However, the third point, however, Amasa takes longer than the three days that he was allotted, and it appears as though either David lost patience with him and sends out Abishai, or David has to wonder if Amasa has gone back over to the dark side. After all, Amasa did choose against him in the Absalom Revolution. He'd done it before. So David sends Abishai in pursuit of Sheba, just bypassing Amasa. I want you to note that Joab is left out of the planning here. He's still not in David's good favor. Joab's mentioned, but only obliquely in verse 7. So Joab's men went out after him, along with the Carathites and the Pelotites. But Abishai is in command, not Joab. Then in verses 8 through 15, these verses report another murder. This time, Joab takes out Amasa. We mentioned that a lesson or two ago, that Joab doesn't take rejection well, especially when his power is what's at stake. Joab is such an enigmatic character. Sometimes he seems as good as gold. He seems like a warrior's warrior who is extremely loyal to David. And then other times, he seems like a very common thug who's a murderer. Here he's going to come across as a very common thug who's a murderer. In verses 8 through 15, when they were at the large stone, which is at Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. By the way, the text is never going to tell us why Amasa delayed. It implies, at least implies, that perhaps the reason that he delayed was legitimate. It just implies that, but it never tells us. Again in verse 8, when they were at the large stone, which is at Gibeon, Amasa came out to meet them. Now Joab was dressed in his military attire, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at his waist. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? You see, they're cousins, first cousins. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. I want you to see what's happened here. Joab has the, the typical garb of his day. It was a tunic, and the sword of the tunic would typically be worn outside. If Joab would have, would have approached Amasa, who's a warrior himself, by the way, but if he would have approached Amasa with his hand on his sword like this, then Amasa is going to be at least a little nervous about the meeting, and he's going to be a little bit shy about just walking into him. But Joab doesn't do it. He's sneaking. He works his, his belt so that as he's approaching Amasa, the belt happens to fall. And Joab catches the sword 
so he's actually approaching Amasa with a sword in his hand. But since Amasa has seen the sword fall, it's not as though he approached him with a sword in his hand while the sword's still in, the, in its holding place. So this is actually pretty smart on Joab's part if he wants to sneak in and, and take Amasa with some sort of deception. You see what's happened. Because the sword fell, all Amasa thinks is the only reason he's got it in his hand is because his sword fell out. And then he uses a kiss to get close enough to Amasa to betray him. Probably not the first time that happened and certainly not biblically the last time. This is a slightly off the subject, but let me answer this question anyway. It has been asked, what was so important about the kiss with Judas and betraying Jesus? Most of those in the arresting party would not have recognized Jesus at night. Some of them might have. But the whole idea of going in, in Judas going and giving Jesus a kiss and, Je and Jesus saying, so you're betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That was to identify Jesus to people that probably wouldn't have recognized him. But that excursus aside, back to 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 9. So Joab said to Mesa, is it well with you, my brother? So he disarms him by first having the sword fall out and catching the sword with his hand. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So it's almost like he, he grabbed his chin to bring him over to give him a kiss. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand. So he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now there stood by him one of Joab's young men and said, Whoever favors Joab, and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. He's actually not dead instantly. And when the man saw, all the people stood still. He removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. And when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. As soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, son of victory. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel or Abel, even to Beth Malchah, and all the Barites, and they were gathered together and also went after him. And they came and besieged, besieged him in Avel Beth Malchah. They cast up a mount against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. There's no way Amasa is going to survive after that, even with modern medicine. It would be a challenge to survive that kind of injury. And then Amasa falls in the middle of the highway or the road. It wouldn't have been a six-lane affair, but a highway back then would have been broad enough to move an army. Sometimes people say all roads lead to Rome. The Romans would have been very offended at that. They would have said all roads lead from Rome, and the Roman road system was built in order to move their armies primarily, to do commerce secondly, but to move their armies primarily. You can't just move an army across country. But what happens is Amasa falls right on the road, and the men of Judah, knowing that that's actually their commander, they just stop. They're not going to step over him. So what one of the younger lieutenants of Joab does, he said, let's go, everybody onward. And people just stand there. What they finally have to do was drag Amasa's body off, cover him up, and that's the only thing that caused the army to move forward. You wonder about Joab. I, a minute ago I said he's an enigmatic character. But David does have to take part of the blame in Joab's behavior. And I say that for this reason. It's David 
who empowered Joab to disobey him. How did he do that? He did it all the way back 10 years before this event. He did it back 10 years before when he made Joab his accomplice in the murder of Uriah the Hittite. Since Joab did David's dirty work, it became extremely difficult for David to ever discipline Joab like he should have been disciplined. And Joab, who was power-hungry to begin with, who might could have been a good guy if he just had lived within certain boundaries, had no boundaries on him because Uncle David couldn't do anything to him because Joab literally knew where all the bodies were buried. And he probably knew something that a lot of people didn't know. It may not have been common knowledge in Israel that David had Uriah the Hittite killed. Probably wasn't. David has to take part of the blame for Joab's disobedience for all these many years. Once again, we're, we're never told that Amasa joined the other side. Had he done so, I would have suspected, and this is dangerous ground, so follow me, I would have suspected that the text would have let us know that he took the other side so that we wouldn't view what Joab did as just a simple, thuggish murder. But the text never gives us any hint that Amasa had gone over to the other side. It presents this as Joab being a murderer. So this sure reads more like a murderer than a justified execution. In verses, again, 15 through 22, we read 15 a moment ago, but in 15 through 22, we come to the account of Sheba's defeat. And it's an interesting story, indeed, perhaps one of the most interesting of the Old Testament. Sheba had made his way to Avel Beit Macha in an effort to recruit people to his side against David, something like Absalom did, but he wasn't nearly as sophisticated as Absalom. And after the murder of Amasa, from this point on, it appears that Joab has said, more or less, I'm in charge here. And so now Joab is leading the army against this township or this city, Abel, instead of his brother, Abishai. Joab had a lot of experience with sieges. He was, after all, a very competent military commander and began immediately to build a Masada-style ramp to eventually topple the city. This must have taken just a little bit of time in order to build this ramp up the wall. I have no doubt, as Joab's doing this, that he feels like he's doing what David would have wanted him to do. I also have equally no doubt that when he stuck that sword in a mace's belly without getting any explanation as to why he was three days late, I also have no doubt that David would have been very disappointed at Joab doing that. So as wrong as he was about taking out Amasa, I think he's being a military commander in obedience to what David would have wanted as he besieges this city. They had just seen the result of one rebellion, and they didn't have the stomach for another one. They wanted to put this thing to rest right away. So they have Sheba trapped in this city, and they want to put it into it right now. The problem is, if they put it into it the way Joab wants to put it into it, Every man, woman, and child in that city is going to die because they have, in Joab's mind, been harboring this one who's in rebellion against David. So I think in that sense, what Joab is intending to do was obedient, but it's also something that's wrong and ill-advised. Anger appears to have gotten the best of Joab. And as far as he's concerned, everybody in that city is dead. 
seeing that they're about to fall under those circumstances, a wise woman in this village decides that it's time for somebody to think and somebody to act rationally. And that's exactly what she does, beginning in verse 16. Then a wise woman, we don't know her name, but a wise man, woman called from the city, presumably from up on the wall, Here, here, please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she spoke, saying, Formerly they used to say, They will surely ask advice at Avel. And thus they ended the dispute. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You're seeking to destroy a city, even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it from me. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case, but a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, son of Bichri, by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bichri, and threw it to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent, Joab also returned to the king at Jerusalem. I told you it was an interesting story. This is a pretty gutsy woman, if you think about it. You've got an army that's surrounding this city. They're about to, to do him in, and he, she stands up on the wall, apparently unafraid that she's going to be shot, and asks to see Joab. And then when he comes and dialogues with her, she accuses him of wrongdoing. So what you're about to do is the wrong thing. You shouldn't be killing everybody because you only want one person. That's wrong. Actually, it's also a violation of the very principles of fairness that King David has promoted and preached throughout his entire kingship, his entire leadership in Israel. She argues that Joab has no call to destroy an entire city as they are peaceful people and by implication, no threat to David. Also, she reminds him that people in that city are the Lord's chosen people. They haven't rebelled against David. Bichrius, the son of Sheba, son of Bichri, has come to them. He's got no call to do what he's doing. So I think that's gutsy for her to point that out. By reputation, she also points out that this city is a place that was known as a location where disputes were typically settled. So she's saying, let's work this out. Let's talk about this. Let's think our way through this before we just go in and destroy everybody in the city. Amazingly, Joab is impressed by this woman's logic and relents, provided they turn over Sheba. I say amazingly because angry minds are seldom clear-thinking minds. That's why we, I believe, value leaders who can take a deep breath in crisis situations and consider all of the ramifications of any decision they might make before moving ahead with any particular option. We I value that, anyway. I don't want a hothead that's just going to push the button and start having a bad day. 
And it's easy for a television commentator or a radio personality to wax eloquent on what or what should be done as soon as calamity strikes. But it's easy for them because they're not responsible for the decisions that are made or any possible negative outcomes of those decisions. And also, if things go wrong, they can just as easily blast the person who made the decision the next day on their television or their radio program for making some sort of rash decision and not thinking this thing through. Well, what kind of leader would do that? Well, the kind of leader that you wanted yesterday, but maybe not the kind of leader you want today. That's why I say it's amazing that Joab listened to her because he is angry and he wants revenge and he wants to wipe everybody out. But yet this woman has a way with Joab. And as she stands on top of that wall and talks to him, she stops and thinks and reasons through what he's about to do. Well, as soon as the woman goes back and talks to the citizens, they heartily agree. I don't know how it happens, but they subdue Sheba. And they decapitate him and throw the head over the wall to demonstrate to Joab that they had done what they had promised that they would do. And so this rebellion comes to an end with a surgical strike and without the loss of life that marked the Absalom Revolution, all because of the sage advice of this one woman. The Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann, commenting on this particular episode, wrote this. Wise words override ruthless policy. At the end, not only the woman, but the city are saved. Something of David's dignity and self-respect are also rescued from Joab's mad, obedient intent. You see, had David won his kingdom back by wiping out this whole city, it's going to be very difficult for him to ever achieve the loyalty of the rest of the people of the, quote, tribes of Israel. He would be a, a despot and not a leader. And sometimes people follow despots, like Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong. But they don't admire them, and despots aren't good leaders. David was a good leader. He didn't need to wipe this city out. So this wise woman not only saves the city, but she saves something of David's reputation. To be able to think under fire is an admirable quality. This woman had the ability to reason with Joab when there was a lot on the line. Because she could reason under difficult circumstances, not only were many lives saved that day, but David's reputation and maybe even his kingdom was saved. When difficult situations arise in our lives, we need to train ourselves to take a deep breath and think under pressure before nuking those that we conclude have wronged us. We should discipline ourselves to think theologically. What would God want me to do? in this situation. Not what does my anger tell me to do, but what would God want me to do? How can this best be handled in the light of God's self-disclosure to man in his word? Think it through. Then act